Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the ideas and content expressed disturbing or objectionable. Is that okay to say in Ohio? <laughs> well, yeah, well, just, we'll allow we, it. Wait, we, just should, should, we should tell about the rule. <laughs> oh, yeah. We only have one right. rule. He'll, he'll agree with the rule. We, we only have one rule at, at, at uh, Rotations, and that is we never mention the school in Columbus by name. <laughs> all right. I'll try to remember that rule. <laughs> Okay, folks, I'm Todd Fredericks, Assistant Professor of Family Medicine. Oh, by the way, I turned in all my tenure documents. I'm no longer overworked with tenure, but uh, I, I might be able to say Associate Professor in a couple months. But I'm still an Assistant <laughs> you Professor. said it anyway. I, I did one time. <laughs> I'm still an Assistant Professor of Family Medicine here at The Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. Yeah, hey, everyone. Uh, Nisarg here. So uh, I'm really excited for today's episode. Uh, we're here with Dr. Kent Brantley, who uh, was nominated as the uh, Time Person of the Year in 2014 for all of his work. Uh, in Liberia. Um, and I, you know, I religiously read time when I was in high school and in college, not so much anymore. So I remember reading the article on you and I went back and read it uh, in preparation for this. And it's really cool to be able to talk to you in person. Um, so thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Of course. Uh, and we also have our, our usual person off the street. Um, Taylor Kowalczyk is here uh, to chime in with questions if he's got him. He's a classmate of mine. So thanks for coming, yeah, Taylor. Great to be here. Always fun. Yeah. All right. So, uh, yeah, Dr. Brantley, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, uh, about your background. Well, so I'm, I'm Skyping in today from Fort Worth, Texas, but uh, rest assured, I am a Midwesterner at heart, <laughs> born and raised in Indianapolis. Did my undergraduate work at Abilene Christian University in Abilene, Texas, a small city in West Texas. And uh, my undergraduate degree is actually in biblical text. And I went back for a fifth year after graduating and did all of my science prereqs in a fifth year, and then uh, enrolled at the Indiana University School of Medicine in Indianapolis and spent four years at the Indianapolis campus there. Uh, during med school, I found and married the love of my life, Amber, and mm. she happens to be from Texas, and we found ourselves back in Texas for family medicine residency at John Peter Smith Hospital in Fort Worth. Um, and, and that's where I work now, presently. So what got you interested in, in your work overseas? I, so this, this could be a, a long story. I'll try to tell the short version. Oh, that's okay. So when I was in college, uh, summer between my junior and senior year, working on my biblical text degree, I had to do a, a summer internship, some sort of uh, Christian ministry internship. And while lots of my friends were going and working with churches in places like Atlanta, Georgia, uh, that didn't sound very exciting to me. And one of my classmates said, hey, I'm going to spend the summer in East Africa. You want to come with me? And so I spent that summer, it was 2002, uh, visiting some different missionaries, Christian workers, in Kenya and Tanzania, and uh, that summer changed my life. And I had been overseas before. I'd been on on different short-term trips with with my church and different groups, uh, but that summer changed my life. And I started thinking uh, big picture, long term, like how how can I use my life in a meaningful way uh, to serve people in need and um, I knew that I was not going to be what you 
think of as your typical like Christian missionary. What I needed was was some skill set, some tangible skill set to serve people in a tangible way, meet people's needs, and uh, that's what that's what led me to a career in medicine. When I finished residency, we applied to and and were accepted into the Samaritan's Purse post residency program. Uh, two-year program for young doctors like me who who wanted to spend their career serving cross-culturally and um, we got into that program and and together with Samaritan's Purse we picked our place and it was Elwa Hospital in Monrovia, Liberia. So we moved there for a, a two-year stint with Samaritan's Purse hoping that it would be two years for the beginning of a, of a career. So can you tell us a little bit about what that medical relief operation looks like? I mean, this is something that's so unfamiliar to me. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question because I did not think of myself as a relief worker. Um, Samaritan's Purse does a lot of international relief and a lot of medical relief work. And in, you name a disaster that has happened uh, this year, a natural disaster, humanitarian disaster, and I can almost guarantee that Samaritan's Purse was there involved in the response. They were in Greece meeting refugees who are coming across the Mediterranean in boats. They, are, they were in northern Iraq in a field hospital outside of Mosul taking care of the victims of war. Um, they are in the Caribbean providing relief and medical uh, aid to victims of hurricanes. Uh, so... Th- you name it, they're, they're there responding to it, just like other relief organizations, you know, Doctors Without Borders, um, Partners in Health, all of these great organizations that, that provide disaster relief or medical relief work. But that was not what took me to Liberia. I did not go to Liberia to respond to a disaster. I went there to make home and to work in hospital care, taking care of people where the uh, doctor-patient ratio is abysmal mm-hmm. and where the maternal mortality rate is exponentially higher than it is in the United States. Sure. And, and what does that healthcare infrastructure look like? Uh, what, what did it look like before, and then how were you able to change it for the better? Well, <laughs> it would it's laughable to say that I changed it for the better. Uh, <laughs> I was I lived in Liberia for nine months, but the hospital I worked in was um, probably on the the nicer end of the average hospitals in Liberia. It was fifty beds in a ward style setup, so we had ten beds in the ER. We had a male ward that had about eight beds. These numbers may not add up exactly, but we had about seven or eight beds in the male ward for any any men older than adolescent age. Uh, We had a similar female ward as well as a maternity ward for any pregnant women or um, new mothers and their babies. We had a a pediatric ward with seven or ten beds in it for any children that got admitted to the hospital. Um, We had one operating room with some nurse anesthetists who provided our anesthesia Um, none of that description may be very striking so far, 
the resources that are available to take care of the patients that fill that 50-bed hospital are uh, limited at best. You know, in medical school, you learn how to do medical decision-making. You know, whittle down your differential diagnosis and choose a treatment plan that's appropriate for your patient. But medical school in America doesn't teach you how to decide which patient gets oxygen when you only have nasal cannulas for two patients in your hospital. Like that kind of uh, decision making, kind of like triage, was, was an everyday part of taking care of patients. You know, oh, we ran out of this antibiotic, so who, which patient is going to get the remaining antibiotics? Uh, or we're low on gloves today, so which patients are you going to wear gloves for when you do their exam? Uh, stuff that you that you don't have to think about in medicine in America. Um, and that was at a hospital that was probably better supplied than most in in Liberia prior to Ebola. Um, it's important, I think, to, to recognize, to acknowledge that post-Ebola, the healthcare infrastructures in West Africa are probably different than what I experienced prior to Ebola. One, because of the effect of Ebola decimating the uh, healthcare worker population and the, you know, doing even more damage to the crippled healthcare system, but also different because of the influx of outside international resources uh, that, that were poured in for Ebola response and that have, in some cases, continued to be made available for post-Ebola recovery and building up of those healthcare systems. So uh, I just want to acknowledge that the, the picture I, I know and I can paint for you may be different than what the picture is like today on the ground there. Hey, Kemp, before you continue, I just want to point something out. Years ago, I read a book by Richard Preston called The Hot Zone, which many people probably are familiar with that talks about Ebola and hemorrhagic fevers, and it was terrifying. In my mind, I was thinking about Reston, Virginia, where they had an outbreak of simian-based disease next to a kindergarten, and then Ebola Myanga, she got, I think she got all the way to France, uh, that strain of Ebola, or was on a plane going, what, before you go into what's treatment like, What's it like to be a doctor that thinks, I'm going to be a, 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 a general practice uh, OB-delivering guy in a very poor part of the world, and now I'm in ground zero for, like, slate-wiping diseases? I mean, that's just terrifying. I can't imagine what that must have, what must have gone through your head. Can you talk about that just a bit? So, yeah, it was, it was scary and very sobering, to say the least. Um, but we had, we had a doctor's meeting... So, so that BBC headline hit the news like on a, I don't know, on a Saturday. Monday morning, we had a doctor's meeting and we started saying, okay, there's an Ebola outbreak 250 miles from here. What do we need to do to be prepared? So the hospital started partnering with Samaritan's Purse Relief to get more appropriate resources, PPE, rubber gloves, all that kind of stuff. And we started having meetings with the Ministry of Health. And uh, one of our doctors, Dr. Debbie Eisenhut, who's a general surgeon, she, uh, somebody found this manual online published by CDC and WHO called uh, 
uh, infection control for viral hemorrhagic fevers in the African healthcare setting. That was that was us. That was that was the appropriate textbook. <laughs> Pretty descriptive. Yeah. yeah. So Dr. Debbie kind of consumed and digested that big manual, and from it she created a, a kind of a like a two-hour hands-on curriculum to train everyone in our hospital, to train the other doctors, the nurses, the janitors, the cashiers. Everyone needed to be on the same page with the fact that there's an Ebola outbreak and we've got to all protect each other from it. Yeah. T- tell us a little bit about then um, your exposure to the virus, right? Uh, at some point when you were treating these patients, um, you were exposed and yeah, tell us about what happened. I interacted with a lot of patients outside of the ETU, you know, on, on several occasions we would have people who somehow made it through our, our triage system that we had set up to, to weed out any suspected possible cases. So I, I, I feel confident that my exposure came with one of those patients outside of the ETU. And I think it was a, a situation that occurred nine days before uh, my symptoms began. And, I, you know, none of this, I, I, didn't, I didn't think of any of this in real time. What I'm telling you is what I've kind of pieced together retrospectively right, saying, I bet this is how it happened. Mm-hmm. Right. So they, they called me to the ER to evaluate a, an elderly woman uh, who had symptoms suspicious for Ebola. Her husband had died um, just a few days earlier of a febrile illness with diarrhea. His funeral had been that day that she was in the ER. And she had not been able to go to the funeral because she was too ill. She had had a few days of fever and stomach pain and diarrhea. Um, Her daughter brought her to the emergency room. She also had just bloodshot, blood red eyes, uh, which was kind of a a telltale sign. Mm -hmm. And I put on my, my limited PPE, like a a plastic isolation gown and gloves and a surgical mask. And I didn't examine her. I stood and held back the curtain beside her bed um, so that I could talk to her and her daughter. And while I was talking to her, she had to go to the bathroom. Her daughter helped her get up and walk to the bathroom, which was uh, adjacent to her bed. Her daughter helped her use the bathroom and come back to her bed. I don't know if she washed her hands or not. But after evaluating this lady and, and putting the pieces together and saying, I, I really think she had Ebola, um, I took the daughter out on the sidewalk outside of the emergency room to, to explain the situation to her. Took off the gloves, the mask, and everything, and threw it away. And I took this daughter out on the sidewalk her dad had just died. Her mom's sick. There's this weird thing going around that people, lots of rumors flying around about Ebola or what else, what's really causing people to die in Monrovia. Um, so I was trying to gain her trust and explain to her why we needed to put her mom in the isolation unit. And I, I have a bad habit of touching my face. It comes with the beard, I think. I don't know. <laughs> um, 
I think that was my exposure yeah. was to the daughter of this woman who uh, died maybe 12 hours later and her, mm-hmm. after she died, her test came back positive for Ebola. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never saw the daughter again. Mm-hmm. After we got the woman transported into the isolation unit and took care of her all night long, trying to, you know, it, it took a lot of effort and a lot of time to transport safely transport a suspected Ebola case out of your emergency department into the isolation unit, start getting her IVs and IV fluid and getting her treatment started and cleaning up the mess that she's making every, you know, every few minutes while you're doing that. Um, it was very labor intensive. And so we it took all night long to take care of this lady. And the, after we got her kind of tucked into the isolation unit, I, took her daughter down, let her look through a window and see where her mom was and how we were taking care of her. Then she left and she never came back. So I don't know if she was sick and wasn't telling us or, uh, or if it was uh, just cross contamination from her helping take care of her mom or, or what. I remember reading in, in the article that you wrote for time, uh, when you first started experiencing symptoms, you were hoping it was malaria and then you hoped it was dengue fever. Um, tell us about that a little bit. You know, when, when you started kind of feeling that fever and, and thinking maybe something's wrong, you know, what, what was going through your head? Yeah, exactly that. I was, I was hoping for anything but Ebola uh, because we had had one survivor at that point uh, in the seven weeks I'd been taking care of patients with Ebola. And um, I took two or three, I think three, home rapid malaria tests that were all negative. I took a course of oral antimalarials and then started receiving IV antimalarial medication and my fever just kept increasing. So then we thought, well, dengue fever, it exists here. Maybe that's what I have. (laughs) Fingers Um, crossed. Yeah. Which is terrible. I mean, dengue fever is, is a deadly, terrible, painful disease. Uh, Lots of people in the world die of, of, hemorrhagic symptoms from dengue every year. Um, but when you, when you're staring at one deadly enemy, you can always hope that it's a different, maybe slightly less deadly enemy. Yeah. It puts things Um, into complete perspective, doesn't it? When you're praying that it's malaria or dengue fever, then you know, it's gotta be a really bad thing. Unbelievable. So, so what was it like then hearing, um, the news that, when your Ebola test came back positive? So I, I mean, I think I knew that news was coming, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. My first test was negative uh, on the day that my symptoms began. uh, Three coworkers came into my house in PPE, drew my blood, sent it off to the lab under a pseudonym, and it came back the next day negative. Um, But our protocol was we have to have symptoms for 72 hours prior to a negative test actually clearing the patient. So I was in isolation for three days um, with worsening symptoms. Like we, I think we all knew what was coming, even though we wanted to, we held on to hope that it was something else. Um, So I, I mean, I wasn't really surprised as much as I had, really, 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 really wanted it to be some, something else, wanted it to be negative. Hmm. Uh, I wasn't surprised. No. And my 
my first response to my two physician colleagues who were standing there giving me that news was, okay, what's next? What's our plan? Yeah. What are we going to do about this? Because we, mm-hmm. we had talked about uh, contingency plans if one of our team members was exposed. You know, if somebody got a needle stick or a, a tear in their suit, you know, something. Um, we had contingency plans in place for things like that. But I didn't know what our plan was if somebody on our team didn't just have a known exposure, but they were symptomatic with Ebola. So I was at, you know, I asked, what's our plan? How are we going to handle this? What are we going to do? Um, then I also thought, how am I going to tell my wife? Yeah. Was your family like she, in Monrovia at the time? They were not in Monrovia then. So we were, we were living there. It was our home. Yeah. Um, they left three days before I woke up sick to come back mm-hmm. to Texas for a family wedding. Uh, they weren't, at that time, they were not evacuated because of the Ebola outbreak. They, they left to come home for a family wedding. And so they were not there when I woke up with a fever. But they were gone before you started shedding viral particles that could have affected them. Unbelievably yeah. fortunate. Wow. Yeah. 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 Um, we can break here yeah, uh, let's and then break move here. into the next episode. But before we break, I do want to give Taylor a chance um, to chime in with a question since uh, he's been here. Yeah, sure. So uh, thank you so much for um, exp- uh, explaining your experiences and everything. And uh, I mean, this all sounds like, you know, incredibly like difficult and, I mean, I just I can't even imagine like just you know because we haven't been put in situations like that where not only we've not been exposed to like you know deadly diseases like that, but you know to go from um, making tough choices about like you know the patients that you're taking care of to like all of a sudden becoming one of those patients yourself, I I just I can't even like fathom that like um, as you know physician in my young career. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about like what it was like going from that physician role? to making, you know, tough choices about, you know, the patients in front of you to, like, basically just becoming, you know, and taking on the patient role? And, like, what was your, like, mindset, like, right there? Um, I, it's hard. I don't think a physician ever stops being a physician. Like, after your medical training, it, it has become a part of your self-identity. Um, so even though I was the patient, like I still was trying to treat myself and I was still trying to, uh, think medically, which is not always, uh, not always clear thought when you're, when you're the one at the center of the problem. Um, I was really thankful for my colleagues who, who took care of me in those, in the, especially in those early days, early hours and days of my illness. Um, I mean, they were doing so not knowing how I had contracted the disease. Hmm. You know, they didn't know if there was some mistake we were all making with our PPE or something Mm -hmm. that had allowed me and my colleague Nancy to both get sick at the same time. Um, But despite that unknown, they kept putting on the PPE and coming into my house and taking care of me. and I remember, I remember Dr. Debbie, the one who had created that curriculum for our whole hospital staff. I remember her coming into my house. Uh, I had an IV in my right arm, and it had stopped functioning. 
uh, wasn't functioning very well. And so she was trying to start an IV in my left arm. And you know, I was in my like big queen size bed at home, not, not a hospital bed. And I remember her like crawling across my bed, um, sticking me multiple times, trying to get an IV started. And she was just like crying, saying, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You shouldn't, I shouldn't have to do this to your friend. Um, so I think it was hard not only for me transitioning from physician to patient. Um, it was it was hard, I think, for the physicians taking care of their colleague as a patient with a deadly disease. Um, and that's a question people ask a lot. And it's a thing I've talked about a lot. But honestly, even after after three years, I'm not sure I know how to put into words what it's like to to make that transition. Um, it, I, I have a deep and sincere appreciation for the people who took care of me. Uh, and I, it, I think it helps me see the sacred nature of our profession uh, a little more clearly having been on the receiving end of it. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Brantley. We're going to, we'll break here. Um, we'll continue on with uh, this interview uh, in the next segment of this episode. Uh, thank you everyone for tuning in um, and we'll catch you guys next week. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science and is part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so that their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations is hosted by Nisarg Bakshi, produced by Todd Fredericks, Audio engineered by Kyle Snyder and edited by Brian Plow. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve all rights to content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast at gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationspcast, or by visiting mediaandmedicine.com slash rotations. Thank you.